Well, I'd invite you to take your Bibles out, turn with me to Exodus, uh, to the 32nd chapter. I don't know about you, um, <clears throat> but this time change thing is not going well for me this year. Anybody any different? Normally, when we get to fall back, usually I get a little boost with that quote-unquote extra hour, but I don't know. It just seems like it's getting dark at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and so you come home in the dark, and you wake up in the dark, and it's one of those seasonal transitions that we go through, right? Well, the... the several times that the weather changes on us uh, throughout the year, and uh, I'm just reminded that life is full of transitions, right? Things that, that we change from one thing to the next, and, um, and uh, I was just thinking about that in, in terms of Israel's story, specifically Exodus, that we were looking at last week. It's one of the formative stories of the people of Israel, the, the formative narratives uh, in the Bible for the people of God. And Exodus tells the story of one of Israel's many transitions. Um, they move from being a people who are in slavery in Egypt, uh, and they transition from that towards the promised land that God had set aside for them, described as the land flowing with milk and honey. But when you look and you dissect Exodus, you would think that most of the narrative would be, how did they get out of slavery? I mean, what was, tell me the story of that. How did they get to this point? And you would think that they'd kind of fly right through the wilderness and they'd get to the promised land, but that's not how Exodus goes. Exodus spends 28, 28 out of 40 chapters in Exodus, talk about times where Israel is in between where they were and, and where they're going. And so it's a, it tells the story of one of Israel's transitions. So it seems to me that it would be logical to think that we can read about their transition and other transition stories in the Bible, and we ought to be able to learn something at their expense. You know, how did it go for them? And then think about the many transitions that we face and figure out, okay, maybe this can, maybe this can help us as we transition, as we go through changes in our lives. So the story that, that I have selected for us this morning is kind of in the middle. Um, we, we ended last week the Israelites had just marched triumphantly through the sea on dry ground, and they get out into the wilderness, and, and they're there for a little bit, and they end up down at Mount Sinai, which God had said, the sign that this is going to happen is when all the people come out of Egypt and, and you meet me here on the mountain. And so they get a little restless in their transition, and so we pick up the story, and I think uh, this is... Um, the story we're about to read, I think, gives us an accurate picture of how we treat transitions sometimes. 
And it sounds different, it, it looks a little different, the context is different, but I think the baseline story is a place where we inhabit often. So would you stand for me, or stand with me? You don't have to stand for me. <laughs> yeah, the good job. <clears throat> and I'm going to read most of chapter 32, so it's a little bit longer, but I'll try and get through it. Um, Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. The people saw that Moses was taking a long time to come down from the mountain. They gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come on, make us gods who can lead us. As for this man Moses, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't have a clue what has happened to him. You notice they credited Moses with leading him out? They're not talking about Yahweh here? Aaron said to them, All right. Take out the gold rings from the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Apparently everybody got their ears pierced back then. And, and bring them to me. So all the people took out the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He collected them and tied them in a cloth. Then he made a metal image of a calf. And the people declared, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built, an honor. he built an altar in front of the calf. Then Aaron announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. They got up early the next day and offered up entirely burned offerings and brought well-being sacrifices. The people sat down to eat and drink and then got up to celebrate. The Lord spoke to Moses. So this is, meanwhile, up on the mountain. The Lord says to Moses, hurry up and go down your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, are ruining everything. They've already abandoned the path that I commanded. They have made a metal bull calf for themselves. They've bowed down to it and offered sacrifices to it and declared, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've been watching these people and I've seen how stubborn they are. Now leave me alone. Let, me, let my fury burn and devour them. Then I'll make a great nation out of you, Moses. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, Lord, why does your fury burn against your own people, your own people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and amazing force? Why should the Egyptians say he had an evil plan to take the people out and kill them in the mountains and so wipe them off the face of the earth? Calm down your fierce anger, God. Change your mind about doing terrible things to your own people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you yourself promised, I'll make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And I've promised to give your descendants this whole land to possess for all time. Then the Lord changed his mind about the terrible things he said he would do to his people. That'll mess with some people's theology. The Lord changed his mind about the terrible things he said he would do to his people. Moses then turned around and came down the mountain, and he carried the two stone covenant tablets in his hands. The tablets were written on both sides, front and back. The tablets were God's own work. What was written there was God's own writing inscribed on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, it sounds like war in the camp. But Moses said, it isn't the sound of a victory song. 
And it isn't the sound of a song of defeat. The sound of party songs is what I hear. When he got near the camp and saw the bull calf and the dancing, Moses was furious. He hurled the tablets down and shattered them in pieces at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it into crushed powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Moses said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that led them to commit such terrible sin? And Aaron replied, Hey, don't get angry with me, sir. You know yourself that these people are out of control. They said to me, make us gods who can lead us. As for this man Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't have a clue what has happened to him. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire, and out came this bull calf. (laughs) Moses saw that the people were out of control because Aaron had let them get out of control, making them an easy target for their enemies. We should probably leave off there. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, that's quite a story. And we're thinking about transition. The title of the message is um, Surviving Life's Transitions. And as I'm thinking about transitions, there's, there are three phases to every single transition, period. There has to be three phases. The first phase, the first is that you have to have an ending. Something has to end that puts you out into transition. The second thing is, once there's an ending, you, you step out and there's this this gap, this neutral zone, this passageway, this wilderness is how we're going to talk about it today. So there's an ending, there's kind of this middle ground that we'll call wilderness, and, and the third thing to get through a transition is that there is a new beginning on the other side. So if you don't get to the new beginning, then you're stuck in the middle ground, the wilderness, and the length of each of these phases isn't always the same. It, it may depend on the situation or what you're leaving to where you're going. And um, the ease at which you get through each of these stages isn't always the same. Sometimes some of them are easier. Some of them are just more difficult. That's how life is. But in every transition, all three exist. Uh, an ending, a middle ground wilderness, and a new beginning. And we're not meant to stay in the middle ground. For Israel, Egypt was their ending. Getting out of slavery, that's the ending. And as they moved out through the sea and into the wilderness, they began to grieve the loss of the things that they had back in Egypt. The things that were their rose-colored memories. And then they were wrestling with this notion of, oh, this is hard, we should just go back to Egypt. I mean, from where we left off last week and, and where we picked up reading today, several things happened. Chapter 15, after this uh, victory song, we get to verse 22, I think it is, and they get to a place and the water is bitter. There's no water to drink. They get angry. They start to grumble. 
complain. Moses, what's going on? There's no water to drink out here. God tells them to throw a stick in the water and it makes it sweet. Chapter 16, we get there. And uh, this is where they get a little further into the wilderness. And hey, Moses, what's for dinner? There's, there's no food. We don't have any food to eat, Moses. So they go grumble, 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 complain, complain, complain. It was back. It was better off back in Egypt when we had stuff to eat, Moses. Moses takes it to God. God says, I brought you out. I will provide for you. I will sustain you. And, and he provides manna to cover the ground every day. And they go out and they collect the manna. And there's quail at night. And, and we get to chapter 17. No water again. Moses, come on. He takes it to God. God says, Whack that rock with the stick, and out comes water. God provides again. Chapter 17 um, has no water. The, there's another part of chapter 17 where the Amalekites, they attack Israel, and they're not prepared to fight, and so there's enemies out in the wilderness. There's no food, there's no water, and there's people that are attacking them. And we get to chapter 18, and now all of the needs of the people are piling on top of Moses. Hey, Moses, we have this argument. you got to solve it. They haven't figured out how to live freely yet. So all along, this, this whole documentation from when they get through the sea to where we end up today, the, they come into things that constantly challenge them in the wilderness. This wilderness is kind of a harsh and difficult place to live, and they, they keep saying, you know what, Whew, Moses, this is your fault. Did you want us to come out here to die? We were much better off back in Egypt. Yip, 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 you know that, right? We like to gripe and complain when things aren't going our way and when we get into these wilderness places. It's just the thing to do. It takes a lot less courage for them to go to Moses and complain than to take it straight to God, who's maybe where they should be placing that. See, in the wilderness, they're filled with confusion. They're filled with anxiety. They're filled with indecision. They are filled with complaining. It feels a little bit chaotic. And their hearts are torn between going back to Egypt, where they came from, or moving forward through the wilderness to the promised land that, that God had promised them. Because this future feels really hard and di a difficult place to get to. It's, we can't predict the future. We know what the past is like, so uh, let's just... Yeah, that whole slavery thing was horrible, but it was comfortable because we knew what to predict. We knew what to expect. They wanted to go back to what used to fit. So they hang on tightly to this old rope. And when you hang on to an old rope... It prevents you from swinging through the wilderness time to, to the new beginning on the other side. And on the other side of, of the wilderness is the promised land, the, the new beginning, where they would make a new way and form this country that God had intended. And God was 
out there, beckoning them. We talk about the prevenient grace of God going ahead of us, paving the way, and he's out there and he's calling us to him. He's not behind us, shoving us into the future. He's already out there in the future calling us to him. And he does it in a way that says, you know what, it'll be okay. Because I'm with you. I've, I've navigated this journey already and I'm out here, would you come and join me? Have you ever thought about just how much of life is spent between where we've been and where we're going? I mean, we begin life in transition. We, we begin life in our mother's womb. And we transition through the birth canal out into light. And so we move from the warmth and the security of our mother's protection. And we... We, we go through this really trying, threatening time through the birth canal and out into this bright and shiny world with noises and bright lights and, and it seems like chaos. You know, we're not supposed to stay in that transitional period. We learn how to breathe. We learn how to eat. And then we go from our young childhood, our toddler years at, at home and and then at some point, we're forced to get on that big yellow steel tube that comes and takes us off to school. And, and school, we end up in there's classrooms and lunchrooms and playgrounds and bullies and teachers and homework, and it doesn't seem as safe and as secure as home was. But we have to get through that time to move from our young childhood into our elementary school years. And then from late elementary school through middle school and into high school, we, we go through this wilderness of adolescence, right? Childhood ends. And we travel through this what seems like a really long period of time where we have to learn how to be adults in the world. Being an adult is overrated, right? We have to set aside the toys of our youth that brought us safety and security and comfort, and, and we leave those behind in exchange for new things that are pushed on us. And it's really hard to let go. Adolescence is a really hard wilderness to navigate, and, and we grieve the loss of our childhood. It was so much easier. We become aware of this much larger world that bombards us with messages and images of, of how we're supposed to think, how we're supposed to feel, how we're supposed to look, how we're supposed to act. If, if you want to be cool, if you don't want to be a reject, you're going to have to do these things. And you know what? All of the messages don't agree with one another. The messages that come at us so quickly are, are in conflict with one another. So it's, it's a confusing place to be. It's a big transition. There's changing hormones and changing bodies and changing voices. And, and suddenly your parents become stupid and embarrassing and you just feel awkward and strange. That's adolescence, right? Then we move from high school and we graduate and, and we move out into the world and the questions are, should I go to college? 
If I go to college, which college should I go to? Should I go to a university? Should I go to a community college? Or maybe I should take some time off and, and I should enter into the workforce. I mean, there's all sorts of things that come at us, and that's a wilderness place to be, moving from what it once was to what it's going to be in, in the future. Dating. <laughs> Relationships that break up. Engagement. Moving, moving from being single to finding the right person to marry. Learning how to live with another person. That can be a wilderness, right? Dealing with in-laws and expectations. I mean, how are we going to celebrate the holidays? How are we going to squeeze the toothpaste tube? Which way does the toilet paper go on the thing? You know, all of these things. You have to learn how to go from what it once was to what it's going to be. That life is full of these kinds of transitions. And they don't end when you get to adulthood. They, they happen throughout our whole life. Even as adults... We wonder what's next. What's the next thing that's going to happen? Sometimes we just want to retreat and go back to a place that once was much more comfortable. We experience job transitions, moving, letting go of one world, and, and feeling like you're in a wasteland of emptiness for a while with you know, no friends and, and no routine and and it's so tempting to just think back to how it was and say, you know what, that, that would be so much better. We get to our 30s, and, you know, we start to analyze the choices we've made and, you know, question the direction of our life, and we work really hard in our 30s, and in our 40s, you know, we, we kind of reassess our, our hopes and our dreams, and you know, when we get to our 40s, we'd, we'd rather find ourselves than prove ourselves. When you get to our 50s and, you know, things that, in our 50s, you know, things that we would have, we would have died for earlier in life don't seem to make all that much difference anymore. We care about fewer things in much deeper ways. We get to our 60s and, you know, we start with the, empty nest and retirement and facing the final chapters of our life. And, and sometimes it might be easier just to, to give up and sit back and relax and take up residence on the couch and instead of look at what the transitions might be leading us towards, the new things that, that we could learn. In every transition, there's an end. There's this middle time, this wilderness, and there's a new beginning. Even with life in the Christian walk, there's an end of the former way of living. And, and we look at our Christian walk as, as a long journey till we get to the new beginning on the other end when we take up residence with God for eternity. Life is full of transitions, not just personal, but organizational, community, our country's going through a national transition. How do we move from one to the next? What's going to happen? Will it be okay? And the only way to know for certain is to move through the wilderness, but getting 
there from here isn't easy. And we doubt and we question and we become weary and we grow disoriented. We complain a lot. We look for an escape. And we grasp for the old ways and the old patterns. Kind of like we reached for our security blankets when we were just infants. The story of Israel helps us. It tells us that the wilderness is really full of creative potential to become wiser people who learn to trust God more. And I think if we learn to navigate the transitions well, the quality of our lives will get better. I believe that we will experience more joy, more satisfaction, more peace, and better and stronger relationships with the people who are going through transitions with us. So there's four strategies. Four strategies to help you survive life's transitions that come out of the Exodus narrative. And I think that they are applicable to any, any change that we would face. And so the first, the first one is you have to learn how to let go. You gotta learn how to let go. Something deep inside the Israelites wanted to cling to the sameness, cling to the boredom, cling to the security that they felt in Egypt. When, when the journey through the wilderness got challenging for them, they grumbled and they looked backwards. Instead of continuing to look in hope to the future, they grumbled, complained, and it caused them to turn and, and look back. Living in Egypt wasn't ideal, but it sure beat the wilderness with no food and no water and enemies attacking you. And some of them wanted to go back, but an ending, if we're talking about endings, an ending means that it can never be the same as it was again. The wilderness teaches us to let go. You know, we, we often handle endings rather poorly. It's hard to let go. We tend to cling to this old rope, and instead of letting it swing us through the transition, um, parents sometimes don't know how to let go of childhood and let the adolescent wilderness journey begin. Um, singles sometimes hold on to their right to do whatever they please. Uh, churches hang on to how it used to be back in the day. You know, you can go through a list of national things. You can go through a ways that our community refuses to move forward. Uh, let me give you this. If you don't think or know if you're hanging on to an old rope, let me give you a quick and easy way to figure it out. You gotta stop and listen to yourself, honestly. If you don't know if you're hanging on to an old rope, pause for a few minutes and listen to yourself, honestly. In the wilderness, we often become professional whiners and complainers. 
Our former pastor, Dan Boone, he says, of the, he says that the subtitle for this whole, uh, this whole section of Exodus, when they're in transition, could be called um, the, the Days of Wine at Moses. That's what he says. If you don't know if you're hanging on to an old rope, you've got to stop, and you've got to listen to see is it, as you're trying to navigate a transition, as you're groping your way through, are you griping and complaining, or are you looking forward in hope and in positivity towards the future? Endings are really hard. We've got to learn how to let go. We, sometimes we lose some of our identification. We're, we're no longer who we were before. Um, we might be a little shaken up and, and confused. We might feel empty. We might feel sad. Sometimes we're afraid and, and a little bit fearful. So rather than recognize that we've come to the end of something, we would hang on. So one strategy to moving and surviving through a wilderness is you got to learn how to let go. Number two is you need to open yourself to lessons in the wilderness. Remember that God wants you to grow in Christ-likeness. God wants you to increase in your faith. He wants you to become more mature, fully devoted followers of Jesus. Times of change and challenge are often opportunities for us to experience some of that growth. See, no one intends to stay in the wilderness. It's a pass-through. It's simply that we need to, to get from where we were to, to where we are going. And, and in the wilderness, sometimes it seems like nothing is happening. I mean, you look at Israel, they grumbled, they were anxious, they wanted to go back. But the story, the story really zooms in on this wilderness time where the human heart is tested, it's revealed, it's formed, and it's matured. God leads his people through situations where the old ways don't work anymore. And we have to learn how to trust him. We need to learn to trust in the process of change, in the process of transition. We need to stop trying to control the areas that feel a little chaotic. We need to stop resisting. We need to stop demanding that somebody do something about it, to stop building golden calf idols. In Exodus 19 through 24, the people have arrived and they're at the, the foot of Mount Sinai and, and this is uh, the time where God's given them some law and, and he is establishing the covenant with them. And so part of that narrative in, in Exodus 20, we get, we get the famous commands, the 10 commands or the 10 words of God. And see, what God wants is he wants them to, to um, put him at the center of their existence. And he gives, he gives the people the law so they can learn how to live as free people. And he says, if you put me at the center and this relationship between me and you is right or true or plumb or square or whatever term you want to use, if this is right, then this access right here with your fellow community members, your family members, 
if this is right and true, then this access will also be level. And it will give you a standard by which to evaluate how to live and love and, and uh, live justly amongst and with one another. And he, so he gives them this law in Exodus chapter 24, verse 3 and, and verse 7. The people say, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Everything we will obey. That's what the people promise back to God. So when you're in the wilderness, open yourself to the lessons of the wilderness. Get quiet before God and ask him what he wants or is trying to teach you. Ask him what growth he desires to see in your life through this particular change. Let him and listen for him to call you deeper. In, in the wilderness, we can be transformed and we can trade our kind of naive faith for a more mature faith. We learn how to face outward instead of always being bent and looking inward. So open yourself to what God might be trying to teach you in the wilderness. The third thing is to tend to each other. Got to learn how to let go. We need to be open to learning new things in the wilderness. And we need to be able to tend to each other. And this one is counterintuitive to the way that humans think. Because our instinctive reaction in the wilderness is that someone ought to be taking care of us. People should notice that we're having a really rotten time, that we're having a really bad day, that we are struggling with moving from whatever it is here through this wasteland. We are in the wasteland right now, and somebody should take note and do something about it. We want the focus to come in on us. Our discomfort is so great that we want the world to pause what it's doing and attend to us. And the story that we have of Exodus flips that totally upside down. Now we need to tend to each other. There, there was a time, Exodus uh, 18, where Jethro, which is um, Moses' father-in-law, comes to visit. He's kind of like the regional manager. He comes in and he just watches this whole episode out in the wilderness and he comes to Moses and he says, hey, you got some problems. People are struggling. There's too many issues. You're taking way too much time, Moses, to settle their disputes and arguments. What you need to do is you need to split it up among the people. So Moses puts the advice into practice and, and, and they create the systems by which they begin to take care of one another and they don't depend on one person to settle all the disputes, to visit everybody in the hospital, to you know, lead every group. They split it up and they tend to each other. That's one of the wilderness lessons is learning how to do that. It takes all of us. It's God's design that we travel 
together. It's passages like this that I'm, it's why that I'm always talking about putting a high value on our MOPS ministry. It's why I'm always talking about core groups and the importance that I see of having everybody be part of one of those, of Bible studies and Sunday school classes and scouts and and all of the ways that we serve out in the community are ways that we draw together and we learn how to tend to one another. That's the third lesson. We need each other. Because you may be traveling through a wilderness right now or you may be just on the verge of stepping into one and we're going to need spiritually connected friends. We've got to learn how to tend to each other. And the fourth thing is to locate God at the center. Got to learn how to let go. You've got to be open to learning things in the wilderness. We need to figure out and practice tending to one another. But number four is we've got to put God right in the middle. And this is the one that Israel had a lot of trouble with. Most of the Exodus story isn't about escaping Egypt. Most of the Exodus story is out in the wilderness, and it centers around God's instructions for building a tabernacle, a big tent. Let's just say a big tent, okay? God gives them these instructions on how to build this big tent because God wants to come down and he wants to camp right in the middle of his people. He wants to live with them. And this is how you're going to do it. This was a massive, heavy tent. And they had agreed, back at the mount, they they agreed that they were going to do everything that God said and they agreed that they would put God in the middle, locate him at the center of everything that they did. But our story starts off, Moses has been up on the mount in his spiritual retreat with God for way too long. 40 days, 40 nights. The people are getting a little bit antsy and restless. Moses is gone. You know, he could have been attacked up there He might be dead. God is not leading us anymore. We don't see him anymore. So they take matters into their own hands. They want a God they can see. They want a God to worship. They want a God to sing and dance around. They want a God that's at their disposal. They want a God that they can cart around and put in a box. They want a God that um, is made with human hands, one that's a little bit more domesticated and manageable. They, They want a God that's a little less mysterious and scary than the one that's thundering up on the mountain. So they go to Aaron, next guy in charge. Hey, We need a God. You know, one of those that helped us get out of Egypt. So Aaron, he's kind of a wishy-washy character. I think he feared the people just a little bit, and he doesn't know where Moses is either. So he says, okay, well, give me all of the jewelry that you looted or that we took out of Egypt. So they bring him all of this gold, and he puts it, and he melts it down, and he He fashions it into a calf, which, by the way, is one of the signs of fertility back in Egypt. So he's fashioned a pagan idol. And instantly, instantly, the people attach the idol to what God did 
and leading them out of the wilderness. These are the gods who brought us out of Egypt. But that's terrible. They gave credit to the idol for what God had done in their lives. And we would say, well, we would never, ever do anything like that. You know, we might not have a gold cow, but we have all sorts of other stuff, money and careers and TVs and entertainment and sports and you name it. Any, anything that takes the rightful place of God in our life is called an idol, and that's idolatry. But I look at what Aaron does, and it's bad. Our district superintendent spoke at our retreat recently, and he mentioned this story briefly, and he said it was really, 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 really bad. And it's something that I think that we read past really quickly. Did you see what Aaron did? He built the calf. The people started worshiping the calf. He did nothing about it. But he built an altar to Yahweh right next to it that they could coexist together. It's all good. You do that. I'm going to do this. Tomorrow is going to be a festival to Yahweh. He seems to honor their actions. Hey, we can do both. It's okay. It's no big deal. We can mix both together. It's like us teaching our kids that it's okay to prioritize other life events and activities over and above gathering together for worship. You know, if you really think about it, we've got some awfully flimsy and lame excuses for missing church. There's so many different things on ways that mirror what Aaron did with how we behave. We struggle with locating God at the center. That's what I'm trying to say. We're enamored with the gods of modernism, the God that has all the answers, the God that can be measured, the God that assures us that, that we are right and they are wrong, the God with the five steps to success, the gods of sports and entertainment, the God that can give us seven keys to happiness. These are the gods that we build for ourselves and we dance around and we have the altar to Yahweh right next door and we say, yeah, hey, we can do both, it's okay. The gods of our own making have no power to liberate us and help us get safely through the wilderness. No power. So meanwhile, up on the mountain, God says to Moses, hey, we got to wrap this meeting up because your people are getting out of control down there. I love that. And God says, hey, your people are out of control. And I'm going to destroy them and start over with you. And, and Moses says, oh, time out, God. You can't do that. You can't do that. Why are you angry with your people? These are your people, God. They're out of control. What will the Egyptians think? God, you need to calm down. You need to change your mind, God. And God does. I love that verse in Scripture. God changes his mind. 
And I love it not because it makes God any less of a God, but because it says that God is open about the future and God entertains dialogue with us, even aggressive dialogue with him. He wants to engage with us. And that will be another sermon for another day. But this is an awesome passage of scripture. So Moses, he comes down the mountain and he gets even madder than God. His anger burns hot, and he sees this dancing and this revelry, and, and this, hears this singing, and he just gets so angry that he takes what God has created and written for the people, and he throws them down and, and shatters them. And then he gets into the camp, and he takes the calf, and he throws it into the fire, and, and I don't know how all of this works with gold and how hot it has to be, but then he takes it down, and the text says that he ground it down into powder and he put it in their water and he made the people drink it. You want to know what I think about your God? Here, drink this and wait a couple hours. Their golden calf becomes human waste, which is about what any man-made God is worth. So Moses, he confronts Aaron. How could you let this terrible thing happen? This is your fault, Aaron. And Aaron starts to make excuses. Hey, don't get angry with me, sir. You know these people are out of control. They made me do it. You know, I just took all their gold and I threw it in there and poof, cow. Just happened. Moses isn't buying it. Moses isn't buying it. I don't think if he came and looked at some of how we practice religion and put our idols and things that we prioritize next to our Yahweh worship, I think he might ask us to grind those things down, put them in the water and drink it. I don't think he would buy it. Because... When we do both, it's not putting God at the center. And the story teaches us that to get from where we were over here to where we are going, that we need to have God in the center of all of that. For Israel, it was a big hassle. They had the physical representation of that big tent I was telling you about. They had to carry it around, and I'm sure that slowed them down and slowed their journey way down because it was heavy and cumbersome, and they had to put it up and take it down and put it up and take it down. Putting God in their midst was, a, was physically exhausting. Maybe it should be. Maybe we struggle with putting God in the center because it requires an awful lot of us. We'd much rather have a God who drops in once in a while and gives us a quick fix. We struggle with a God that requires so much effort. But I think God gave them a big tent because his primary interest wasn't getting them to Canaan in record time. His primary intent was centering their lives on him. Revolving your life around God can be a hassle. It requires 
a lot. It doesn't happen accidentally. It happens because we choose to pattern our life around practices like gathering together for worship and meeting in groups and tending to each other and praying in the mornings and evenings and reading our scripture and practicing Sabbath and giving of our resources. All of those things take intentional effort. They aren't accidental. Israel didn't learn the wilderness lessons well. They just didn't. They wandered out there for 40 years. A whole generation died in the wilderness because they didn't get the wilderness lessons. They couldn't let go. They, they, they didn't listen to themselves complain and gripe and open themselves to learning new things in the wilderness. They didn't figure out how to tend to one another. And they really struggled with keeping God at the center of their existence. See, wilderness transition, it doesn't have to be a, a barren and desolate place. It doesn't have to be a lonely time in your life because God is deeply active there, traveling with you, side by side, encouraging you, comforting you, teaching you, if you'll listen. So let him see you through from whatever ending that's happening in your life right now, whatever rope that it is you're hanging on to, let go of that rope. And let him shape you, let him encourage your heart. Let him walk each step through this wilderness journey with you so that you can celebrate with him in whatever the new beginning might be on the other side. The people of God said, Amen.